turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. and 2 Samuel 11, we looked at last week. It was recorded that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. We talked about that last week. And had her husband Uriah put to death. Look at the last two verses of chapter 11 before we go on. Chapter 11, verse 26 says, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that, uh, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as we read those verses, David gives no indication at all that he's going to repent. Doesn't seem like he's going to repent. The chapter closes out. He's been cold. He's been calculating throughout this whole chapter. And it closes out that way. However, we know from Psalm 32 that he says the hand of God was heavy upon him during this time. And so I think his conscience was bothering him. By the way, genuine believers don't get away with sin. We don't get away with sin. God convicts us of it. But David is doing his best to keep this hidden. He's done this the whole chapter 11. He's tried to hide it. But we can't hide our sins from God can't do that ultimately, but he will deal with us in his time and his way. And in chapter 12, the time has come for the Lord to deal with David. And so he sends his prophet to confront David. That's what we want to look at first, the first six verses of chapter 12, Nathan's parable. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord said, sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a, had great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives... Surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. In chapter 11, David exercised authority as the king of Israel. That word sent, we said last week, is a key word there. He's always sending for people. He sent a messenger to take Bathsheba, for example, in chapter 11. He sent to Joab to have Uriah come back to him. He sent a message by the hand of Uriah to, to, to Joab to instruct Joab to put him on the front line of the battle so he could die. And then at the end of the chapter, he sends for Bathsheba to become his wife. So David is sending constantly. He's the highest authority in the land. Who can challenge his authority? David is the guy who sends and people come. And he tells them where to go and they go. And that's how it is. He gives the orders. He's the king. Uh, by the way, the only authority that's higher than David in all of Israel is the Lord. No one else is higher than, than David other than the Lord. And as the king of Israel, David could have gotten away with sin had it not been for the Lord. It was going to challenge the king. He can pretty much do what he wants to. But the one who is sovereign over David and over us now sends for Nathan the prophet to go to David. It says in verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he shows his authority. He sends Nathan to confront David. Now, now it's the Lord doing the sending. And he's going to confront David with his sin. Now, that brings up a question. How do we know when it's right for us to confront other believers with their sin? How do we know? I don't, I don't go around thinking I need to confront people all the time with their sin. I don't think that way. 
I think about my sin and I think, man, I got to get my, you know, confess my sin to God and get right. But how do we know we can confront another believer? We don't have prophets today. And the Lord doesn't send prophets to say, hey, confront that guy about his sin. We don't have that now. So what do we do? By the way, when I talk about confronting another believer with their sin, I'm not talking about uh, confronting someone with a preference that's different than yours. I'm not saying that because they have a preference that irks you. And so you want to confront them. Some Christians are ready at the drop of a hat to confront others with the most insignificant things, issues. Don't do that. Maybe you need to be confronted with your sin if you do that. Don't do that. I'm speaking now about blatant sin that a Christian is committing that is causing harm to other people. And how do we confront them? Well, I'll tell you what, whenever the Lord brings it out in the open, when, when you find out about it, when you find out it's true, when you find out it's not a rumor, that it's not gossip, and you know about it, you know it's really happening, then you can confront that person. Don't base it on rumors or hearsay. And in what spirit do you confront a, a fellow believer who's sinning? What spirit do you take with you? Well, first of all, you remove the log from your own eye, don't you? You don't go with, with, the, with, with your own sin and then say, hey, what are you sinning for against God? <laughs> That's not how it works. You remove the log from your own eye. And Galatians 6.1, you consider yourself lest you're also tempted, right? Because you've got to realize we're tempted too. And you go in gentleness and love and approaching a fellow believer about his sin. You have the attitude of Nathan, as a matter of fact. I guess when you have the attitude of Nathan, you can go and confront someone with their sin. Now, how does Nathan confront the most powerful man? Think about this. The most powerful man in Israel, the king. How does Nathan confront him? Does he go in with both guns blazing and, you know, firing away and trying to bring the king to the point of total humiliation? Does he try to rake him over the coals and uh, bring him to his knees? No, I don't think so. I don't think that would have gotten too far, probably, approaching the king. But you have to understand that Nathan is David's friend as well. Remember back in chapter 7, David is, says, you know, I think I want to do something for the Lord. I want to build him a house. And, and he hardly has the words out. Basically, that's what he's thinking. And David, Nathan is reading his mind. And he's saying, go ahead and do it. Do it. The Lord's with you. Nathan's a good friend of David's. And he's always going to be loyal to David. And so he knows David. And so he comes to David as a friend, first of all. And also as a prophet, as God's prophet. Oftentimes, the best person to confront someone in sin, a believing believer in sin, is, is, is another friend of that believer. Because that friend will love that person and can confront him in love. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? And so we come as friends and as believers who love other believers, and we come with the right attitude and the right approach. And Nathan is wise in how he confronts the king. And we come with wisdom. We need the wisdom of God to do these kind of things. And we better... Watch ourselves also when we come and confront others. And so what does Nathan do? He starts off with a parable or a story. He doesn't say a parable, but it seems to be a parable, a story he comes with to David. And he says, look, David, I've got a, you know, by the way, he doesn't come and say to David, David, I've got a parable I'm going to tell you. I want you to know you represent the rich man in this parable. He doesn't do that. That would ruin the whole thing. He comes with great wisdom and he says, look, David, there's two men I've got to tell you about. And this is troubling you got a poor man and a rich man, and uh, you've got, you know, David's drawn immediately into the story, and he says, this poor man had one ewe lamb. That's all he had. David's immediately drawn into this. Why? Because remember, David used to be a shepherd. He used to care for sheep, and so David immediately has, is interested in this story. And furthermore, David's the shepherd of Israel at this time, 
And this man, this poor man, treated like the, the lamb, the ewe lamb, as a pet, just like a daughter. And, and he used to feed the animal from his lap, even, and 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 he drink from his the man's food and or from the man's drink and eat from the man's food, and it would rest on him. And then there was a time that came where a traveler came to the rich man, and the rich man wanted to show hospitality as they did in the Middle East, and so he. He's got plenty of livestock. He can, he can uh, you know, cook up some, some of his own. But he goes and takes the poor man's lamb and makes dinner with it for this traveler. That's a sad story, isn't it? Well, verse 5 records David's reaction. By the way, David had not mentioned anything about the Lord at all in chapter 11. If you notice that, he didn't said nothing about the Lord. But now he says something about the Lord after he hears this story. He says in verse 5, as the Lord lives, this man basically deserves to die. He throws in the Lord's name now. Now he's backing with the Lord's authority. And David is thinking, man, I'm sure the Lord's behind this. And this man deserves the death penalty for what he's done. Furthermore, he says this man deserves to pay restitution. He's got to pay back four lambs for the one he stole. That's the penalty. By the way, if you don't think David knows anything about the scripture... The first five, remember in Deuteronomy 17, he's supposed to read the five books of the law and keep reading that every day and be familiar with it so he can understand what God wants. If you don't think he knows the scripture, you're wrong because he got this idea of the fourfold restitution from Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. And it says there, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and he slaughters it or sells it, he, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for one sheep. Wow. David's got this down in his mind. He knows this. Exodus 22.1. How many of you have memorized Exodus 22.1 recently? But David knows the, the verse. He's familiar with it. That's the, the penalty for the theft. You steal a sheep. You pay back with four sheep. David's very aware of the contents of Exodus chapter 22, isn't he? Well, that tells me he's probably also very aware of the contents of Exodus chapter 20 which is only two chapters prior to that. Now, they didn't have a numbering, numbering system back then in the, in the Bible, but, you know, David had just had, had to have read shortly before Exodus 22 to understand the whole book of Exodus. I'm sure he read the whole book of Exodus. And Exodus 20 has got the Ten Commandments in it, doesn't it? It talks about the Ten Commandments. And David broke three of those commandments in Exodus 11, in, in uh, 2 Samuel 11, without even batting an eye. Killed, had someone killed, had more than one guy killed, actually. Uh, committed adultery, uh, coveted, all those things. And so the point is David was not ignorant of the Scriptures. He knew what it said. He knew what the Ten Commandments said. He knew what Exodus 22... That means he knew what Exodus 21 said. And, and no doubt the whole book. And then David says this, Look, this guy doesn't have any compassion either. See that? He has no compassion. How dare he take that one lamb from the man who had one lamb left to feed this guy that came in a traveler. David just can't even imagine this guy being so cold-hearted, so callous toward people. How can he be this way? How can he be so callous? And so he passes judgment on the guy. He says, Nathan, that guy deserves to die. That's the parable of Nathan. And then look at David's punishment. That's in verses 7 to 23. David's punishment. Look, let's read verses 7 through 15. Nathan said in verse 7 to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. 
And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companions, your companion rather, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. So Nathan gives the parable. Uh, David has condemned this rich man in the parable, although David thinks this is a, an incident that's actually happening. And then in verse 7, Nathan makes the application. He says to David, you, David, are the man. David had said uh, about, in verse 5, he had, he had talked about, as the Lord lives, surely the man, the man who did this shall, shall die. And, David, and Nathan says, you are that man, David. I'm talking about you. Well, that's a way to get to the king. He just set him up for this whole thing. You're the guilty party, David. The rich man is you, David. You took what didn't belong to you. You're guilty of sin. And as David himself has said, as the Lord lives, surely a man who has done this deserves to die. So in effect, David passed the sentence of death upon himself. Nathan took him right into the trap. <laughs> Perfectly done. By the way, this is brilliant. And David condemns his own self. And then he proceeds to, to express the Lord's displeasure with David. Nathan continues on. Look at all the personal pronouns in verses 7 and 8 uh, that the Lord uses in verse 7, uh, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I, I anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wife, and your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If it had been too little, I would have added many more things like these. The Lord did all this. He says, I did this for you, David. I did so many things for you. The Lord was so gracious to David. He blessed him in so many ways. It was the Lord who had given David the position of power and authority in Israel. That's why he was king. That's why he had this authority. That's why he could send people where he wanted to, because God gave him that authority. It was the Lord that every time, remember all the times that David escaped from Saul in 1 Samuel? Who was behind all that? The Lord was. And he, and he says as much here in this chapter. And it's the Lord who transferred the kingdom of Saul to David. It was even the Lord who gave Saul's wives into his care. Stop. That's where we stop, right? And you say, wait a minute. What does that mean? He gave Saul's wives into his care. Well, first of all, when a king was put out of power in an ancient Near East, the next king inherited the harem, first of all, but that's not what this is talking about here. But that did happen. But it means this, that everything that belonged to the house of Saul went to David. All his possessions went to David. And also, it's, no, it's nowhere recorded in Scripture that David had anything to do with the wives of Saul. It doesn't say that anywhere at all in the scriptures. Uh, the Lord's not endorsing polygamy here. 
He's not, he's not, he didn't establish monogamy in Genesis 2 and then negate it all now by establishing polygamy and saying, yeah, it's, it's okay to do this, David. I think he's just simply saying that everything, and he says that many things he gave him, everything that belonged to the house of Saul is now given to the house of David. And he says he's blessing him in so many ways. He's given him everything. He's given him charge of the entire country, not only Judah, where, where he started out as, but also Israel and Judah. North and south, the whole country is all yours, David. I've given you everything. I've held nothing back from you at all. If that wasn't enough, I'd give you more if you wanted it. And so what thanks do you, did the Lord get in return? He gets blatant disobedience from David. Outright disobedience from a guy who knows better. And in verse 9, Nathan asks him a very searching question. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've despised the word of the Lord, David. Anybody's ever said that to you? Yeah, that word despise means to accord little worth to something. To undervalue something, to not very put much of a, a premium on something, it means to even show disdain for it or hold it in contempt. To hold the word of God in contempt. It's the same word, by the way, used in First Samuel two of Eli the priest and his sons, when Eli and the priest and his sons showed irreverence for God and the offerings and all they did. And the Lord says there, those who despise me, same word, First Samuel two is used here. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. This is a serious charge against David. Very serious charge he's leveling against David. He's got the, David has the gall, had the gall in chapter 11 to hold the very word of God in contempt. And that's what it says. And throughout this whole saga, saga of Bathsheba and Uriah, chapter 11, David had placed absolutely no value on the word of God whatsoever. And that's the truth. That's what he's saying here. You didn't even care about the scriptures at all, David. You care less about the word. Now you're going to get all excited in chapter 12 here. You're going to get all excited from Exodus 22 all of a sudden. You're going to pull out a verse that you got in the back of your head to get this other guy. And you had no regard for Exodus 20 at all. No regard. You broke all three commandments in this very cold and calculating way. No regard for the word of God. You forgot all the wonderful promises that the Lord gave you in chapter 7. Remember the Davidic covenant? All that he promised them just... You know, before this, chapter 7, he promised him all these great things. You forgot all that stuff. You trampled over the word of God as if it's worthless, is what he's saying here. And that's harsh language, but that's what he's saying when he says you despise the commandment of God, the, the word of God. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe that David has done this. That's what it says to us. This is not the David we've come to know, is it? Not the same guy that we read about before chapter 11. Prior to chapter 11, it seemed like there was a different David. But this David is one we don't recognize. Kind of like now he's turned into a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde for a little while here. Who's this guy? Seems to be a different guy. And David had despised the, the word of the Lord. That's compounded in verse 10 because it says there, David had not only despised the word of the Lord, he despised the Lord himself, it says in verse 10. As he says to David, Nathan says, you have despised me. You've despised the Lord. That shows us if we despise the word of the Lord, we are in fact doing what? We're despising the Lord himself. Those two go together. It's the Lord's the one who gave his word. It's his word. And so when we trample over his word, we're trampling in effect over the Lord himself. And so David despised the Lord and his word. That's just mind-boggling considering who David has been all this time. Now, first of all, how did he do this? How did he trample over the Lord's word where he was responsible for the death of Uriah? He killed, who killed 
By the way, who killed Uriah? Wasn't it the Ammonites that killed Uriah? Well, look at verse, verse, verse 9, how it puts it. Nathan says to David, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You did it, David. You killed Uriah. It's your fault. You're, you're the one who did this thing. Now, David used the Ammonites to accomplish his dirty work for him. But nevertheless, David set up the murder. He plotted the murder. He held it, he's held accountable for the murder. And then secondly, it's stated twice that, that David took the wife of Uriah to be his own wife. Verse 9 sums all of this up. He says, David did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's the thing we don't think about. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the way that this is structured in the original is very telling. It really puts the, the names of the, of the people at the front of the sentence for emphasis. And literally says this. It says, Uriah the Hittite, you struck down with a sword. And then it says, his wife, you took as your wife. That emphasis is given to show the great harm that David did to people. And not only did he despise the word of the Lord and the Lord himself, but he harmed these people too. He hurt them. That's what sin does. So the Lord has been so good to David. He's blessed him in every way possible. David didn't deserve any of these blessings. He doesn't uh, have any claim on it. It's all a gift of God. And yet he spurns the goodness of God to him. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And we think to ourselves, well, I would never do that. I would never treat the Lord in such a manner. I would never treat the, his word in such a manner. You know what? 2 Samuel 11 is often a reflection of, of, what, of who we are. We want to put it on David as who we are. We may not sin the way David did. Um, but nevertheless, we sin against the Lord, don't we, in many ways. And it's against the background of, what, of, of God's many blessings to us. God's blessed us believers in so many ways. And yet we turn around and spit in his face. We sin against him, transgress his words. You know, believers have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, right? Ephesians 1, have everything that God has given. We have forgiveness of sin, and we have redemption, and we have, you know, the Holy Spirit. And we have all these things in Christ, eternal life, and, we, and yet we turn around, we forget all these benefits in a moment of temptation. We forget all these benefits, and we, we disobey His Word, and we treat the Lord with absolute contempt as if we don't even know who He is. And that's what we do when we start plunging headlong into sin. That's what we do. Forget all about God. We just think about our way, right? Getting our way and what we want. And in the process, we hurt other people. And we ignore the Lord altogether. And that's what happens when we sin every time. And we're shocked at David's behavior. We get to this chapter and we're shocked, right? But we're not so shocked at our behavior when we sin. Kind of overlook that. Now, have you ever thought of your sin in terms of Accounting the Lord is uh, of little worth, of, of considering his word to be very insignificant in your, in your estimation. Have you ever thought of sin that way? That's a way to look at sin that this chapter is highlighting here. When we sin, this is what we're doing. We're saying, in effect, I don't value, I value my sin more than I do your word, Lord. I value my sin more than I do you. And that's, that's what we're doing when we sin you know, we do well to think of our, of our sin as an act of trampling upon God himself and upon the word of God and just running roughshod over that because that's what it is. And that's what it says here. <clears throat> now, there's consequences to sin. There's consequences. We don't just sin and then all is well. There's a price to pay. Sometimes that price is very steep as in this case. David's now going to reap what he sows. And this judgment is going to come in two ways. First of all, the sword will never depart from his house. Verse 9, it says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? 
You've struck down Uriah the Hittite. Um, you've killed him with the sword. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Never depart from your house, David. This is just really a, a tough judgment. In this chapter and those that follow, by the way, four sons of David are going to die prematurely. Four sons. The first one is in this chapter, the one Bathsheba is pregnant with. Second one is in chapter 13, that's Amnon. We'll, we'll talk about these guys later. Chapter 18, Absalom dies a premature death. First Kings chapter 2, Adonijah dies prematurely. And in the Davidic covenant in chapter 7, the Lord had said, I'm going to give you peace and rest from all your enemies all around you. All, all those nations around you, your enemies, I'm going to give you rest from all. And, and we saw that he's doing that. He saw that in chapters 8 through 10. He's given David rest from all his enemies. But David's going to suffer grief in his own household. I think I'd rather fight the enemies around me than to be have, have it that way. Now, back in verse 6, David said to the rich man that stole the sheep, he said, you're going to have to make restitution fourfold. But I don't think David ever in his wildest dreams thought that the Lord would take four of his sons in the coming chapters. We all know David was a man of bloodshed, but there would be further bloodshed in his own, in his own house because the sword will never depart from his house. What a tragic uh, condemnation from God. And then secondly, evil will be raised up against David from his own household. Verse 11, it says... Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil from your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Notice that this condemnation, this judgment, this punishment is going to be a sovereign act of God. It says here, I, Nathan, speaking on God's behalf, says, I will raise up evil against you. God's going to do this thing. He's the one doing it. This is not an accident. God's going to do this. The Lord is going to give David's wives to a com- his companion, it says. And that word can mean friend or a close associate or even an occasional associate. And at this point, we don't even know who the companion is. But in chapter 16, we're going to find out who the companion is. And it happens to be one of David's sons named Absalom. That's the companion. David, Absalom will commit iniquity, will commit uh, immorality with his father's concubine in broad daylight, in, literally before the sun. He's going to do that. What's the point? David committed sin with Bathsheba privately. Absalom's going to do that publicly in front of everybody. You know, if you, if you, if you sin and you think it's going to stay secret, it may, it may not stay secret. God may very well expose your sin depending on what it is, he's got a way of exposing our sin and keeping it. And we try to keep our sin hidden. God has a way of exposing it to others. After David hears all this, you can imagine he's, you can imagine the burden he feels at this point. He just got nailed by the Lord, right? But after he hears all this, he's quick to respond with confession. With repentance, it says in verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, is this true repentance and true confession here, or is he just scrambling to, to find a way to get a handle on this situation because now this thing's gone public? What's he doing here? No, this is real. This is not a quick fix deal like Saul did back in 1 Samuel 15 when he supposedly repented, and then he wanted, God, he wanted Samuel to show him respect in front of the nation anyway. You remember that? It's not one of those kind of deals. This is true repentance. You know, sometimes we do that when we, when we, we repent, supposedly. It's not real. You know, we, maybe it's because 
we're repenting because the, the church expects us to, after all. I mean, I've got to, everybody else says that we should do that. Or maybe we want to retain our standing in the church or something else, but it's not real. But David here doesn't put any stipulations on his repentance. He doesn't do that. He's, there's no deals with God here. There's no bargains he's making. Uh, he's not seeking to justify his sin. He doesn't deny his sin. In fact, he doesn't even say very much at all. He only makes one simple statement. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, that reminds me of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Uh, when he was before God, he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating upon his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Remember that? Very short statement, but same type idea. The confession doesn't have to be a certain set of magical words we use. I've heard people say the strangest things to Christians on how you should repent and confess and all this stuff. It doesn't have to be a certain set, a set of magical words or a certain formula that someone came up with, although some people think that's the case, apparently. It just is a matter of your heart being convicted and broken over your sin and agreeing with God, I've sinned against you, Lord, however that comes out. And David recognizes his sin. In fact, the word he uses for sin, it's the, it's the famous word to miss the mark or to miss the way. I miss the way, Lord. The Lord is... Uh, the Lord wants us to lead us in the path of righteousness for his namesake, right? But David's veered off that path on purpose. He chose to veer off that path. And so now he's sinned, and he's done wrong, and, and he knows it, and he confesses it. Furthermore, he recognizes who he sinned against. He sinned against the Lord. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes, he did. Did he sin against uh, Bathsheba? Yes, he did. But who's at the root of this thing? At the root of it, he sinned against the Lord. He's sinning against the Lord. And so that's what we do when we sin. And so convinced is he of the fact that when he writes Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord, and done this evil in your sight. So Nathan, he, he confesses his sin just outright. And he, and he means it too. And you can tell by his other Psalms that he wrote, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, that he means it. Nathan's quick to respond to David. He says, and this is a great verse, he says, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now, I don't think he would have said that. Had, he would not have said that how, had this not been genuine confession, genuine repentance. But quickly, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You won't die. This is not done glibly. None of this is. These are two seasoned saints. These guys didn't appear yesterday you know, on the block. They, they know the Lord, both of them. They've been walking with the Lord for some time now. They're both sincere in what they're saying. And what Nathan is doing here is saying, David, God's forgiven you of your sin. He's forgiven you of your sin. By the way, when it says the word taken, in verse 13, the Lord has also taken away your sin. That phrase has behind it the idea of causation. It means the Lord has caused your sin to pass by. The Lord has caused your sin to pass away, passed over your sin. That's what it's talking about. The Lord has brought this about. In other words, forgiveness is the work of God. We confess, he forgives. And that's what he does. Now, that doesn't mean now that uh, everything's hunky-dory for David. God's been merciful to him, but it does mean he's been forgiven. It does mean he's going to live. By the way, the law said he has to die because he had Uriah put to death. He's a murderer. He should die, according to the scriptures, according to the law. He should die because he committed adultery. He's, the death penalty is over his head. But God's saying, you're not going to die because God's merciful. All that's true, but... He's not going to escape the consequences of his sin. He's not going to do that. Consequences of sin are like a runaway train. You can't stop it. 
It just keeps on going until it's run its course. And no one can stop that. And so he's going to experience the consequences of sin. But think for a minute about the grace and mercy of God. God is merciful to David. Truly, this is amazing grace, isn't it? God's, God's forgiven him. It says in Exodus 34 that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, gracious, slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. It says he forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. The Lord's so gracious to people, so gracious to David. He's gracious to us. We can look back over our lives and we, we look back and why did God save us? Why did he forgive us of our sins? Because he's gracious, compassionate, loving. And then, as I said, David wrote two psalms. And I think maybe one day Mike will probably preach on Psalm 32, if I'm not mistaken. And then he wrote Psalm 51 as well. I'm not saying he's going to do this next week, by the way. One day. Before January, we find out. But David wrote two psalms that, that detail his confession of sin. Those are well worth reading. But, you know, nevertheless, though the Lord had forgiven David his sin, and this is a wonderful thing. Nevertheless, look at verse 15. It says, however, David, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. David's given opportunity now for the enemies of who? The enemies of the Lord. The blasphemy, the people that hate God, the God-haters, to mock God and to mock his people. Isn't that what happens when, we, when believers sin and it gets out there in the public eye? Everybody finds out about it? What do they do? Make fun of church, right? Make fun of God. Make fun of the Lord. Make fun of the scriptures. It's all a big joke. And we've undermined everything when we sin and our sin gets out there. We've undermined the whole thing. And so we've got to be careful with this. It's not the end of the bad news either. David Now Nathan says, David, your son uh, that Bathsheba's pregnant with is going to die. He's going to die. And that's the end of what Nathan says. Verse 15 says, so Nathan went to his own house. That's, that's a great verse too. Why? Because in any other nation, the king would have had Nathan put to death for saying all that to the king. But not here. The, David knows Nathan's right. Nathan's my friend. Uh, I know the Lord. He's, what he's saying is, is true, and David confesses it, and he knows he sinned, and he takes his medicine. So Nathan goes peacefully to his own home. Look at verse 15, the, end, the rest of verse 15 through 23. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? When the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to him that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? 
I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In verse 15, the Lord strikes the child with sickness. David fasts and prays, doing everything he can, seeking the Lord because he's going to do everything. He's doing the right thing, doing everything he can within his power and, and seeking God with one goal in mind, that the child might live. And so he's going for it, fasting, prayer, all of it. However, seven days later, after the child is born, he dies. The child dies. Now, David's servants did not want to inform him of his death because they had tried to talk to him, and he wouldn't even talk to him during this time. And they figure, well, we don't want to tell him now. He might even become suicidal. No telling what he'll do with himself. So we're afraid to tell him. But David's not stupid. He sees the guys whispering, the servants whispering, and he thinks, the child's dead. And he asks them, and they confirm that truth. And instead of acting suicidal, David gets up, he washes himself, he changes his clothes, and he goes about his business as if nothing had happened. He goes and worships in the house of the Lord first. By the way, that's probably no temple yet. I'm guessing that's the tent they put the ark in, and maybe there was more to it than that. I don't know. That's the only thing I can figure out. At any rate, he goes to worship, and then he comes back home. Then he goes home, and he's hungry. And he says, I want something to eat. And, you know, he probably fasted for seven days. Anybody here, if, well, I'm not going to ask you if you fasted for seven days. I fasted for seven minutes one time, and that was not easy. But you can imagine he's hungry, right? And so uh, David, his servants think, wow, this is strange behavior. Well, what's, what's David? So you have to understand, back in Israel, <clears throat> when a guy died, somebody died, they mourned for that person for a long period of time. And David's... He'd been mourning before the child's death. Now he's not mourning. He's ready to go about with his business. He's hungry. Let's get something to eat. Let's go on with life. David says to him, don't you guys get it? When the child was dying and when he was sick and he was alive still, I was praying, thinking maybe the Lord's merciful. I know the Lord's merciful God. David knows this. And maybe he'll do something. He'll step in. And how many times have we prayed for people that were sick or in the hospital or dying? How many times have we done it in hopes? And that the Lord will be merciful to rescue that person from death. I mean, I, and, I, and I'm the kind of person that always, I always pray for the person's healing. Maybe that's wrong. I do it anyway because I'm thinking maybe the Lord will be merciful and, and heal this person. I don't know what the Lord's going to do. But the Lord chose not to answer that way, did he? And when David knew that, he says, look, he didn't answer that way. And so there's nothing I can do now. He died. What do you want me to do? Let's go back to life now. Let's, let's get on with life. But then he says something that's been, that's, that's been very comforting to parents over the years. Very interesting verse, verse 23. He says, uh, the child has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, does that mean that David was going to simply die like the child had died? Is that what he's saying? He's just saying, I, I'm going to die. The child's died. I'm going to die also. Is that what he's saying? I know there's a lot of discussion about this verse. I'm aware of that, that over the years I've heard people talk about it and people have wondered about it and discussed it. What does it mean exactly? Well, I'll tell you. I thought about this. <clears throat> I'm not saying I'm going to hang you know, all my hats on this, on total evidence from the Scriptures based on this one statement, but the language here is very personal. David says literally, I will go to him. It doesn't sound like he's just saying I'm going to die. It sounds like it's very personal language to me. I'm going to go to him. He's not going to come back to me. I think he's, and I, I think he's saying I'm going to be reunited with this child one day. I believe that's what he's saying. So I think it's proper for people to have hope when a child dies in infancy. I think it's proper for them to have hope. 
And I can't explain all the... I know, there's a lot of different arguments that come up. I can't explain all those arguments to you, okay? I'm just saying what the verse says right now. But, oh, what punishment David had to endure in all this time. Child died, and he's going to be judged in the future in different ways. I'll tell you something. Before you sin, count the cost. Count the cost before you sin, and you will realize it's not worth it. Think about it. Write down a list of things that can go wrong before you sin. If I sin, what will the consequences be? One, two, three, four, five, six. And you'll see that it's not worth it. That brings us to, we've talked about Nathan's parable, David's punishment. Now, thirdly, the chosen child, verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. All right, that's pretty straightforward. However, there's a little kink in the thing here. First Chronicles, there's always a kink. Uh, you know, a monkey wrench has always got to be thrown. And I'm always looking for the monkey wrenches, Mike, constantly. All right, what's going to trip me up about this passage? Now, I know something. somebody's going to get me before it's all over with. First Chronicles 3, 5 is the monkey wrench. <laughs> it lists, there's four children born to David and Bathsheba. And the fourth one listed is Solomon. Now, that may not be in chronological order. This is my take right now. Because the indication in verse 24 is that David comforted his wife after the death of her first child. And she becomes pregnant with another child. It says there, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba right in order here. As if Solomon's the next child. And I think I take it that he is. I think the four children in First Chronicles 3, 5 right now are not necessarily in chronological order. It doesn't say they are either. It just throws out four names. Regardless of all that, I'm just telling you that's for your own information. You can study that. It's interesting. The child's given two names here. The parents name him Solomon, which has something to do with uh, the Lord's peace. And, and, and Solomon will be in a, reign in a time of peace. But then the Lord has a name for him also. Interesting. Through the Nathan and the prophet, the Lord has the name. Ever, you know, you, you, when you have a baby, you think about what will we name him? And you go through all those 700 names and you're trying to figure out what to name the child and Lord says, I got a name for this child. Let's call him Jedediah. You know, if the, Lord, if the Lord had a name for your child, okay, I'm going with his name, whatever it is, right? Let's call him Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. Name means beloved of the Lord. The Lord loved this child as special Solomon is. This child's special. The Lord loves him. He's going to be the next one to sit on the throne of David to participate in the Davidic covenant. That's a, that, that in itself is great. This is a choice man. You know what's interesting about this, though? It's amazing how the Lord takes all the messes that we create and still brings His will through it all, right? We make a big mess. David makes a big mess. Somehow, through all this big mess, comes Solomon in the line of David. Oh, yeah, there's one more thing we've got to wrap up, and we'll conclude the chapter, all right? Maybe we forgot about this. Look at verses 26 through 31, Israel's victory. It says, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it. Or I will capture the city myself and it will be named after me. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah, fought against it and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head and its weight was a talent of gold. By the way, it's about 75 pounds. Heavy crown. I wouldn't want to wear that, wear that crown on my head all day. And it was a precious stone. It was placed on David's head, probably not for very long. 
And he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the rest of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. You know, with all that crazy stuff going on about David and all his shenanigans in chapter 11, um, you know, did we forget about the background of chapters 10 through 12 and all this? Seems kind of anticlimactic, right? At the end here, all this stuff's happening. Oh, well, by the way, there's a war being fought. This has been the background of chapters 10 through 12 all this time. Israel's been fighting the Ammonites in the background. David should have been in that battle, but he's over here at Jerusalem doing his other thing. And so that's all going on. Joab's fighting against his enemies all this time. Joab gets to the place where he's in a position to take Rabbah, the capital of Ammon, and he captures, and it says he captured the city of waters, probably meaning he captured their water supply. And he's a loyal commander. And if he, if he takes this city at this point, by the way, he's, he's, he's ready to take the city. He's done all the dirty work. Now he can just go in and take the city and capture it. If he takes it, he's going to get credit for it. He knows that. Being the loyal commander he is, he says to David, come here, David, finish the battle, and you'll get credit for taking the city. Well, David should have been there from the beginning, but he wasn't. So David comes in. He captures Rabbah. And then in verse 31, that verse probably means he put the people to hard labor on various building projects. Why? Because Rabbah was a strategic city on the other side of the Jordan. This is a very impressive victory, by the way. You know what one historian said about this victory? He said, in six centuries of Ammonite history, the only time the capital city of Rabbah was taken in battle and captured was in the 10th century B.C. under the leadership of David and Joab. This is the only time it was taken. This is a very impressive victory. Great military battle, great victory militarily speaking, wasn't it? But even though that was true, again, the sad thing is he lost a great spiritual battle at home. He won the great military battle, but he lost the great spiritual battle that would haunt him for the rest of his life. And it truly would. And when you think about this, all the kings of Israel... Even David, even the best kings of Israel, of Judah, even the most righteous ones, every one of them failed to represent the Lord exactly the way they should have. There were some good kings in there, but no one was perfect. There's only one king in the line of David who's perfect. Who's that? King Jesus, right? The only one that's perfect. He's the only one that will never fail. He'll be the only one that sits on the throne of David that will be perfect in every way. David was the man after God's own heart. But Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Father. David was a man after God's own heart and failed. Jesus never did. He always did those things that please the Father, didn't he? He's the perfect king. The writer of Hebrews was able to say in chapter 4 of Hebrews, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Aren't we weak? Aren't we weak? He can sympathize with that, Lord can. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin, unlike David, who was tempted in sin, unlike us, who have been tempted in sin, he has been tempted, he was tempted, and yet he's without sin, Christ is. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't ever put your trust in men. 
They will fail you every time. Put your trust in the Lord. He'll never fail you. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful tonight to be here to, hear, to have your word in front of us again. Uh, we just pray that we would take heed to it tonight, the warnings that are listed here in chapters 11 and 12, the, uh, and help us to learn from this, not just to go away and, 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 and not think about this, to learn from this and to realize we've got to be on guard, that we've got to trust in the Lord, that we've got to uh, put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. We just pray you'd help us to do that and deliver us from our sins. And we pray this in Christ's name.